Open up your Bibles to Romans 12. That's the passage we're going to kind of be in eventually here this morning. It's voting season. And here in Pennsylvania, we'll be voting on April the 26th in our primaries. Don't worry, I'm picking on the other ones too. Don't get offended, all right? Your guy's not the only one I'm picking on. You know, people are talking about how old Bernie is. And finally, that's for all the conspiracy people that think he's from Canada. There are many, many, many people. When we think, when we talk about voting, politics, elections, don't worry, I am not going to ruin our tax status with the government before the morning is over. What I want to talk about today is in the context, especially of this political season, what do we as believers do who have a worldview that is unique to us? that we share a worldview with no other culture, with no other religion. We are unique in the way that God has built us, made us, and is grooming us, discipling us, bringing us into following in Him and being like Him. What do we, as disciples of Christ, do when we are called to vote for men and women, especially this particular crop of men and women? There are many who think that Christians have only one choice. We would vote for the candidate who uses the most scripture and talks about God and is identified as a churchgoer. Well, four years ago, that particular candidate would have been Mitt Romney, and he was a Mormon. This year, we've heard a lot of God talk in the primary season. Marco Rubio, he's even called the Republican Savior. He's no longer in the race, had some very open and very well-stated comments about his saving faith in Christ. He attends the Southern Baptist Church there in in, uh, western Miami, And his background is Catholicism, and he still attends the very Catholic church at at some frequency that he and his wife were married in. We had a preacher in the race, and Mike Huckabee. Mrs. Clinton this week spent time speaking in two Memphis churches. The burn this week was hanging out with the Pope, and even though he's Jewish, you make that what you will, all right? Ted Cruz's father is a preacher, and then there's Donald. He loves two Corinthians. And this week, he told us what his favorite verse was. It's an eye for an eye. Pew Polls, the Pew Trust Foundation that polls people, says that Ted Cruz is backed by white evangelicals, weekly churchgoers. Trump is backed by white mainline Protestants. Now, if you want me to define some of those terms for you a little bit, mainline Protestants are going to be the old, what used to be prominent, largest churches. It would be your your Methodist church. It might be your Episcopal church. For the most part, this is not a blanket statement, but you tend to find mainline churches to be more liberal than we are in our doctrine and our practice. So they would probably do things that we would say we would not find comfortable with and not see the Scripture teaching us towards. That's saying that mainline white Protestants are more leaning toward Trump, whereas uh, people, evangelicals, are leaning more toward Cruz is what they're saying. To even look at this, to even kind of take this and look at it a little bit further, First Baptist pastor of Dallas, which was the very first megachurch and is still a big deal in downtown Dallas, Robert Jeffries is the pastor there. He stated this earlier in regards to the Iowa caucuses in our primary earlier this year. And he says, although as a pastor I cannot officially endorse a candidate, but listen to what he says, I want you to know I would not be here, he's in Iowa speaking on behalf of 
of Trump, Dump, I'm sorry, Trump. He says, although as a pastor, I cannot endorse a candidate, I want you to know I would not be here this morning if I were not absolutely convinced that Donald Trump would make a great president of the United States. But he's not endorsing him. Jerry Falwell Jr., president of Liberty University, and Mike Huckabee have both come out and endorsed Donald. Ben Carson, a favorite Bible quoter who is in the, in the race earlier this year, has been a favor by many evangelicals and has been hosted at many churches to speak, has endorsed Donald. But not all evangelicals are happy with Donald. They want, um, they want to say to him, like, you're fired. You know what I mean? Max Lucado came out and says, I cannot stand this any longer. And so he came out and put on his personal blog site, so he didn't endanger church's status. He came out and said, I can't do this any longer. Trump made claims to be a Christian. He's held up his Bible. He spoke at major Christian universities, Liberty. He's repeatedly said that he is a Christian. But then he's been quoted more than once as saying, I have never asked God for forgiveness. And this is what Max Lucado said. And I think this is probably strong language for Max. He said this, how does that work? That you've never asked God for forgiveness and you call yourself a Christian. That's like a swimmer saying, I've never gotten wet. Or a musician saying, I've never sung a song. He can't say he's a Christian and have never asked God for forgiveness, is what Max is saying. Max is saying that. I'm just repeating Max. Don't come and talk to me about that now. How is a follower of Jesus, someone who is supposedly to have an entirely different worldview than all others, how are we supposed to decide on who to vote for? I'm not going to give you that answer today. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. We're going to talk about how you decide. I'll say that, that it's easy for me to get discouraged. It is very easy for me to get discouraged. You, you can talk to the elders and uh, my wife a little bit. You can talk to uh, them. And recently in the elders meeting, I had a small little, little meltdown um, a week or so ago about the status of things. Let me just say that before the next presidential term is out, I believe you'll lose all your tax status and your giving. And if you don't lose it in this next four years, you will lose it in the next eight years because they're already after it. They've already gone to the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, won the case there to rid churches of their tax status, but then an appeal court turned around and gave it back to them. If they won it one time, they'll come back and seek to win it other times. That will be gone in our lifetime. So that's where I get kind of like, oh, what is me? I don't have much hope that voting for anyone is going to seriously going to change the direction of our nation. I don't believe that voting for anyone is really going to represent my values, what I believe, and what I thought I was voting for when they said they were going to, that I represent this. And I would say, oh, that's great. That's what I believe. And I vote for them. And I really believe that when they get to Washington or wherever it is they're going, Harrisburg, that when they get there, they will not really represent that any longer. I believe that power corrupts. And it's hard to stand for certain values when you get where you're going as a politician. I feel that as a community or as a state... We can vote and have an overwhelming majority for an issue and then to have nine justices overturn it and say we don't get to have what we voted for, a majority. I fear that our nation, now it is apparent that principles no longer guide our decisions, but polls and Twitter and talk show hosts on Comedy Central are more influential than us coming together and overwhelmingly voting on an issue. We are in a time and a place, I believe, where how I identify myself tips the scale on right or wrong, even if there's laws who say one thing 
what I choose to identify myself as tips the balance in my favor, regardless of what the law says. More so than anything that's common, more so than anything that's decent, more so than any biological argument you could put on the table, what I choose to identify as counterbalances all that and trumps all those cards. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. It doesn't matter if it's believable. It only matters if I say so, and therefore they will write laws to protect what I say I am, what I identify as. And if you don't believe me, you just have to just pay attention to the news a little bit. I'm going to give you this if you come back to me and say, you are taking things out of context. I'll give you this ahead of time. This particular case I'm about to give you is from Canada, but there are other cases similar to it that are in the United States. This gentleman here in the middle is a 52-year-old man with six kids who chose to leave his wife and self-identify as a six-year-old girl. And the people on either side of him are celebrating that and have chosen to adopt him so he has parents by which he can be a six-year-old girl with. He said, I can't deny I was married. I can't deny I have children. But I've moved forward now. You hear that? I've moved forward now. And I've gone back to being a child. I don't want to be an adult right now. And so this gentleman will be able to go into a bathroom with your daughter and be a six-year-old girl because he chose to and because he does not want to be an adult anymore. It's not rational. It's not scientific. And what's really, really interesting, isn't it? That the reason we believe in, 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 in global warming is because there's so much science behind it. Where's the science? You see, the thing is, is that there is no more moral right or wrong. We've talked about this before. If I pull out a ruler and I say, this is 12 inches, that man can walk up there and say, no, it's not. It's six years old. And he wins. He wins the argument. He wins the discussion. It doesn't matter what science is behind it. In that particular case, he wins the argument. I don't believe we can elect anybody who will stand in any elected position and take a stand against that and win. I don't care who it is. And you see it all the time in the anti-discrimination laws that are being passed throughout the South primarily, where the law comes to the very top, the pressure comes on, and they repeal the law. They veto the law. I do not believe you can have hope in elected officials in the voting process. So now you see why. I have my little meltdowns. Having said all that, what are we to do when we walk into the voting booths on April 26th and later on November of this year? Al Mohler, who I listen to almost every morning, I now have infected my wife with Al Mohler. He does like a 20-minute, 18 to 20-minute podcast every single morning about the news of the previous day, whether it's international or national. He's a thinker a really good thinker. And Al Mohler recently wrote on April the 7th, he said, the very notion of right and wrong is now discarded by large sectors of American society. Where it is not discarded, it is often debased. Taking a page out of Alice in Wonderland, modern secularists simply declare wrong, right, and right, wrong. Which immediately takes us to Isaiah 5.20, where it says, woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them who do that. You'll hear, if you go through the Old Testament, especially the prophets, you're going to hear time and again where God is speaking against the prophets who chose to speak falsehood to the people. 
instead of truth. And time and again, these prophets, the minor prophets, are, are talking judgment against those type of prophets. Well, and then here you have 2 Timothy 3.13. He says, and then this whole passage could have been used. I just chose to stay with this one. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So 2 Timothy is becoming very true. I believe this was Al Mohler who said this. He said, Quaker theologian D. Elton Truebridge once described America as a cut flower civilization. Our culture, he argued, is cut off from its Christian roots like a flower cut at the stem. And though the flower will hold its beauty for a time, it is destined to wither and die. You've heard people say that the beginning of the end is when they begin to remove God from the schools. I don't know that I really believed that at the time. I felt like it was probably some old guy like me now, and I'm crying wolf. But now you see we are reaping the fruit of that because we are having an entire generation that has very little connection to the root. The beauty has held for a time, but it is withering and dying. He spoke those words two decades ago. The flower can still be seen with some color and signs of life, but the blossom has long since lost its vitality, and it's time for the fallen petals to be acknowledged. Dostoevsky said, when God is dead, anything is permissible. Have you ever heard more true words? When God is dead, everything is permissible. Now, I know some of you went and saw the movie and you've learned that God is not dead, which is really a good thing. But to the larger segment of our culture, God is dead. His influence, anything he has to say, is no longer a value, is no longer anything we should listen to. Matter of fact, if there is anything that God said, then we should counter it and we should make an argument against it. The permissiveness of modern American society can scarcely be exaggerated, but it can be traced directly to the fact that modern men and women act as if God does not exist or he is powerless to accomplish his will. With all that being said, it is important to keep in mind as we look at candidates. You see, this very thing in the crop of candidates we have at hand now, at least two of the five running do not seem to have any spiritual mooring at all, no biblical input to draw them to establish what is right or wrong. Others claim to have a biblical foundation, but such statements as babies are unborn persons with no rights, which flies absolutely in the face of Psalms 139, where you have formed my inward parts and you wove me in my mother's womb, and I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So someone who were to say that babies have no rights and can be aborted up until the very last moment do not have a biblical mooring. The bloom is faded. That's true. But God is not dead, but he is surely, surely forgotten. Making these decisions about who to vote for comes down to you, not to them. It comes down to you. It has never come down to them. It's just that we have been in the minority. We've been in the majority for all of our lifetimes. And that has changed now. We are now in the minority. And the interesting thing is, is that if you go to all the polls, tell you, they'll say over 50% of our population still claims to be Christian. If that's true, how did these elected officials end up in office? I would venture to say some of us who call ourselves Christians do not vote based on our worldview or on the biblical values that we say we live by. How do you decide how to vote for on the 26th? It depends on you. And do not be conformed to the world. 
Do not think that it's okay for a 52-year-old man to leave his family and become a six-year-old girl because he wants to. Do not think that it's okay. A white woman can say she's an African-American because she wants to. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not buy in to I was born this way. That is being conformed to the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove. Let's just rewrite this verse for our purposes today so you can figure out who to vote for. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, this is how it works. We want to find a candidate whose views and platform align as much as possible with biblical morals and standards. That's what we want. But it is obvious in this particular process right now that we are not going to get that. And if you think it's hard to find it this year, you wait until four years from now or eight years from now, and it'll be almost impossible. There I am again. What was me? Eeyore. The Eeyore pastor. I'm about to preach to myself next, all right? So y'all just hang on, sit there and listen because I'm going to talk to myself. See, because this is the thing. If right now it is difficult for us to decide what is personhood, right now if it's difficult for us to figure out what is genetic male and genetic female, right now if we've already begun to drink the Kool-Aid that says that gender is fluid and I can be this today or that tomorrow, Right now, if we have already figured, if we're having a hard time figuring out how to treat the alien and the foreigner within our country, how to deal with the poor, the orphans, the widows, how to deal with homosexuality and truthfulness, if we're difficult having that right now, what do you think it's going to be like four years from now? The only thing, the only thing we can say is that if, unless God intervenes in a way that we have not seen in our nation in probably more than a century, unless God intervenes in that way, we will continue down this slippery slope. Character is huge. Moral strength has to be unquestionable. But who aligns with this agenda? Who, it's not even an agenda. Who aligns with this standard? This standard. Who aligns with that? Simply choosing a man because he goes to church every week and even teaches Sunday school does not pass the test. That didn't work well for us in the 70s, and it won't work well for us in the new millennium either. There are two things I'm going to share with you now that I couldn't say better, so I'm using the words. Vote your conscience. Vote what you read in the Word of God. Many issues are disputable matters. As the Apostle Paul even says, avoid the temptation to vote without reflection. Avoid the temptation to vote on your personal personal conscience, what feels good for you. Avoid the temptation to vote the way that your friends tell you to, the way that I tell you to, the what you're reading in the media The way to decide on who to vote for is not by listening to what other people are saying, but is to watch what they say, and even more importantly, watch what they do, and then look at the Word of God and say, do these two align? And where do they align? It's really funny, because in 2010, as we were going into the election cycle then, I said then that those elections that we're coming into are probably going to be the most important of our lifetime. I was wrong. I think these are. Because the floodgates are opened and there will be no closing them. We will follow the path of Europe and we will end up like Europe. What has shaped your conscience? What has shaped your ability to make a decision? 
What has shaped your ability to look at the circumstances? Your worldview. What has shaped your worldview? I've been going through with Grant and Tom on our morning Bible studies, and we've been memorizing Proverbs 1.7. But Proverbs 1.7 says, The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. In other words, what it's saying is to know what to do, you need to fear what God thinks. It's not being afraid of him. It's like knowing what he thinks and making sure you fall in alignment with that. That is the beginning of knowledge. That is the beginning of renewing our minds and having it be transformed, is knowing what he believes and saying, I have to bring my life in alignment with that. And then I have to live that way, speak that way, and vote that way. When I vote because my best friend told me to vote that way, I'm not voting that way. When I vote because my mama and my daddy and my grandma and my wife are all Republican or Democrat, I'm not voting that way. My father said to me, he said, son, you're too, you're too poor to be a Republican. When you vote along a party line, you are not voting based on a transformed mind. You're not using a renewed mind. You're doing a party line. I got a video for you that Betty turned me on to this week. And again, there's often so many times when other people say things better than I could. I'm going to let Andy Stanley say this, and then we're going to have a closing word. Maybe you saw this. It was making the circuit this week. Okay. Now, real quick, I want to say something to a couple groups, all right? First, I want to say something to all of you who are 45 years old and older. You don't have to raise your hand, okay? 45 and older. Look up here. Many of you have grown weary and you've lost heart. And the reason is because you have fixed your eyes on a political system. You have fixed your eyes on a political leader. You have fixed your eyes on the good old days. You fixed your eyes on the economy and you are, you are growing weary and you need to knock it off. And I'll tell you why, because you are scaring the children. You are. Now look up here, look, look. The generation that's coming along behind us are gonna take their cue from us. And here's the cue we're giving them. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right person in the, in the, you know, elected in office, it's the end of the world. If we don't fix the economy, it's the end of the world. If we don't have religious freedom like my mama and my grandmama had religious freedom, it's the end of the world. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right laws passed, if we don't have the right policies, it's all coming unraveled. Nothing could be further from the truth. Look up here. Government, and po- government matters, policies matter, but neither of those matter as much as men and women who understand this word. Faith, confidence that God keeps his promises and that nothing can thwart the plans of God. We know this from the Old Testament. We know this from the New Testament. We know this because the most powerful person in Judea, Pilate, looked at Jesus and said, what is truth? Crucify him, game over, it's done, let's move on. And the only reason you know who Pilate is, the only reason you know who Pilate is, is because you know the story of Jesus. Pilate, the governor, becomes a footnote in the story of Jesus. In fact, most of the first century people you know about, you know about because they're part of the story of Jesus. We have nothing to fear. So all of you people over 45, knock it off. You need to model for the next generation that God is in control. God can be trusted. Get involved in the political system. Get involved in culture. Get involved in your society. But you never fix your eyes there. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Okay, so you see what I mean? Andy does a good job with that.
The president will not rule for eternity. Only Jesus will do that. And when he rules, he will rule with perfect justice. No bad guy will get away with anything. No bad guy will get away with anything. You won't get to identify as anything other than who you are before a living, righteous, holy God. And in that moment, perfect justice will be meted out. And the bad guys will get what they deserve. And the good guys will get rewarded rightly and adequately and appropriately. And so when you read about in Psalms, in so many places where it says, I know that the unrighteous will suffer and will come to doom. And you know that they died rich, fat, and happy. That wasn't the end of the story. That was just the end of their life on this planet because there's another life that they're going to go into. And in that life, they're going to run smack dab into a righteous, holy Jesus that says, this is where it ends. Right here. You will pay for everything you ever did. You'll pay for what you did with me. You'll pay for what you did there. And justice will be met. And for those who know Christ, they'll show up there and he'll say, what did you do with my son? And you'll say, I believe that he died for my sins and I trusted him as my savior. In my Sunday school class, in that great chair upstairs, in the car on the side of the road, wherever it may have been that you trusted him, and he'll say, that's what I needed to hear. Now, let's see what you did, and I'm going to reward you based on what you did. Perfect justice before a holy, righteous, eternal judge. And that, that is where we have hope. that the next four years, the next eight years, the next, the next however long it may be, may be really rough, may be really different, may be very difficult to identify as a Christian. Now, let me just say that. Isn't that interesting? I'm sorry. This is extra bonus. This is not my notes. Isn't that interesting? That people can identify as a Christian? Let me just say that in the next eight years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, those who identify as a Christian who aren't Christians are going to fall by the wayside fast because it won't be easy to be a Christian. It'll be those who are truly Christians, who have sold out their hearts and their souls to a Savior who died on their behalf. Those people are the ones who will be not only identified, but the real deal, baby. And I don't say that like I'm going to do well. I think about that with a great deal of fear and trepidation, even for myself. So when you go to the booth and you vote, vote with, your, vote with what God has put in your head and your mind and your brain and with what he says is the righteousness. And regardless what happens after that is on that politician because they'll answer one day. And this is not all there is to it. We have great, great hope and an eternal king, and an eternal judge who is far beyond anything we could ever imagine in this world. He will be better than Ronald Reagan. If you're a Republican, that's a good thing. (laughs) If you're a Democrat, that's still a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. We have nothing to look forward to but good, good things. There is no perfect candidate. There's only Jesus. Let's pray.